Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Writing about and analyzing the administrations of American presidents is Pulitzer Prize-winning author-historian Doris Kern Goodwin's specialty. Her latest book is Leadership in Turbulent Times. In it, she traces how Presidents Lincoln, the two Roosevelts, and Lyndon Johnson handled crises. I conducted an onstage interview with her last Saturday night before a sellout crowd at the St. Louis County Library. While we talked a lot about past presidents, whom she calls my guys, we began by talking about the present, starting with her take on the recent midterm election results. The most hopeful thing that came out of the midterms were the people standing in long lines to vote, and the fact that a lot of people who had never run for public office before, record-breaking numbers of women came out. Um, I think it was pretty thrilling. Um, I think that the House of Representatives is going to be more diverse now, not just record-breaking numbers of women, but Native Americans, Muslim Americans, more people of color. Um, And I think the idea that We've been feeling we're in the worst of times, and I sometimes get asked by people, are these the worst of times? And I think history can provide a perspective that, you know, when you think about what it would have been like if we were young in 1861, and you're going into Abraham Lincoln's world, and the um, country is splitting apart, and the 600,000 people are about to die. Lincoln said if he had ever imagined how terrible it would be, he would have thought he couldn't have lived through the anxiety. Or, of course, think of it what it was like to be young in that Great Depression when you couldn't get your money out of the bank and when your job was gone and and the whole sense of maybe capitalism was grim. And what was it like in those early days of World War II when we had no idea how it would end? So we don't know how this period is going to end, but I think the one hopeful thing, as I say, is that every situation that I've studied in history It's a combination of the leader, the right leader at the time, which may not be happening right now, but the citizens are active. When Lincoln was called the liberator, he said, don't call me that. It was the anti-slavery movement that did it all. You've had the progressive movement under both Roosevelt's, the civil rights movement under Lyndon Johnson, the women's movement, the gay rights movement. And I think if the citizens are awakened now to the fact that we're in a very serious situation, and if they continue to be active, and if young people voted more than ever before and women were there more than ever before, new people entering, I think we have to have hope because America gets through these things. As you know, we're older. We know we do, and it's a good thing. We've been through a few of them uh, yes. ourselves. What, what do women bring to the table in politics that men don't? Well, what I'd like to think is that women, because they've been, and I've seen studies on this, I'm not just speaking as a woman, wanting to believe it as a woman, but they do tend to, studies show, be more collaborative, more willing to compromise, go across party aisles, because they've been doing that all their lives. But I think most importantly now, at a time when we've seen Washington so broken for so long, Just if there's new people coming in who still believe in politics. I mean, right now, the Congress 
has only like 11% support among the people. And I was worried that would the best people want to enter public life anymore when you have to raise so much money, when your private life is under siege, when it's not going to be fun maybe to be in Congress. The fact that there's new people entering, not just women, but new people who are still believing in the system and can bring some of that outsider status from having been a leader as a teacher or a doctor, as some of these people are, I think they're bringing that that idealism back into the system if they've not been in it. As a presidential historian, what did you make of the president's news conference following the midterms? It was, I must say, you know, one of the things as a, as a leadership person or somebody who studied leadership, a leadership person, that's very articulate, is, um, <laughs> is that when you go through an adversity and whatever, however President Trump tried to spin the night, losing the House of Representatives with that big wave was, a, was an adversity for him. You hoped that that person would be chastened and would learn and be able to acknowledge errors that were made. But when he was asked about losing some of the House, you know, his answer was, everywhere I went, I won. Everywhere where somebody lost who was a Republican is because they didn't ask me to come there. And then mentioning their names, they'd just gone through a losing election. It was hard enough. It hurts when you lose. So the Republican who lost, here's his name mentioned by President Trump. It said, loser, you didn't have me there. And then when he turned on the members of the press, I mean, obviously, all presidents get annoyed with the press at every moment in time. But to turn on, on three black women and talk about them as losers or asking stupid questions or, or, and then turn on Jim Acosta and take, take his, whatever you're going to call it, his, what's that word? <laughs> credentials. Take his credentials away. Um, it just, it just, it was really a, a chilling moment, I thought. There was no sense of any responsibility, no sense of shouldering it, no sense that things were going to change. There have been so many times when I kept thinking something was going to change, especially when the bombing plot happened, when you thought that maybe he'd really call for unity, and he did for a moment until he blamed somehow the Democrats for it. I thought when the killings in the Jewish synagogue happened, again, that maybe that's the moment when he'd be able to talk about the toxic culture that we all all shared. He could say he shared it with the press, but no, blaming it on the press. So I guess from a, a leadership point of view, um, the kind of qualities you're looking for of empathy, I mean, even today, um, to be honest, when he talked about the fires, his first response to the fires in California had to do with the fact that the California management, forest management service was at fault. You know, and only later did he emphasize empathy for the people who were going through the fires. And, and that's, that quality of empathy is, is, I think, the most important quality in a leader. And sometimes you're born with it. Sometimes you learn it because you live in difficult circumstances. Sometimes you develop it, as Teddy Roosevelt did, um, when you experience other people's points of view as a, as a politician. Um, but without it, there's no way you can understand other people's points of view. You can feel other people's feelings, and you can't lead a democracy without that. What do you think, uh, and again, we'll get to the book in a moment, but this, uh, we have a new acting, <laughs> new acting attorney general. What, what do you make of that situation? Well, I, I, I think it won't last very long. I mean, I think from what I've heard from legal scholars that you have to have been confirmed um, by, by, the, by the Congress in order to be in a position of that authority. And because he was chief of staff and not confirmed, he will not be able to be staying acting director very long, um, acting cabinet officer. Um, again, you would just think that somebody would have explained that to the president. <laughs> I, 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 it's, 
I don't know. Well, he hasn't figured out whether he knows the guy yet. He, yeah, he did know. know him a couple of weeks ago. Now he doesn't. Right. Yeah, I don't know him. Oh, yes, I know him. I know. I mean, it's that sense of political truth that, it, I mean, there have to be consequences for people who don't tell the truth. There used to be. I mean, and that's, I think that's the thing I worry about the most. I've never heard the word, never heard the word lie used as often as it has been in the last uh, two years or so. You never heard people talk about the presidency and, and use lie in any kind of a sentence talking about the president. Now you hear it every day, all day. I know. Yeah. No, I know that if, and can a democracy exist without a shared political truth? I mean, there has to be at least an agreement on facts. Um, then you can argue about opinions. And somehow we've got to get back to fundamental decency, a fundamental civic dialogue, um, a fundamental sense of what is right and wrong. I mean, that's, that's the worrisome thing. You think about our kids and our grandchildren, and they're exposed every day to somebody saying he's lying and proving that he's lying, and yet there isn't a consequence yet. But I think, I think the consequence was in this midterms. I do think the citizens have finally gotten aroused, and it may not have you know, answered everybody's desires in everybody's ways, but the fact that they came out in record numbers, I think, is a very good beginning sign of an awakening. And the citizens will prevail. I mean, what Abraham Lincoln said is, with public sentiment, anything is possible. Without it, nothing can happen. And public sentiment is about to be registered, I think, in this country pretty soon. Well, you know, I think you're helping. And I think Michael Beschloss is helping. And I think John Meacham is helping. I find it interesting that three eminent presidential historians are writing books at the same time on leadership. I think it's fairly obvious why, but <laughs> why did you write your book? Well, to be honest, I started it five years ago so that it seems very prescient that it's called Leadership in Turbulent Times. But I wrote it in part because when I finish each one of my long, fat books and I have to go to the next president, I always feel a sense of betraying the one who went before because I have to move all of his books out of my study to make room for the new guy, say as I moved from FDR to Lincoln or from Lincoln to Teddy and Taft. So I decided five years ago that instead of doing that and finding a new president to write about, that I'd like to just take my guides, as I sometimes like to call them, because I feel so familiar with them, having lived with them for so long. I always have this feeling that um, I, I don't know why people would imagine it's so much fun to spend your life doing dead presidents, um, but I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. My only fear is that in the afterlife, there's going to be a panel of all these characters. <laughs> And everyone is going to tell me every single thing I missed about them. And the first person, of course, to scream out will be Lyndon Johnson. How come that damn book on the Roosevelt's was twice as long as the book you wrote about me? But anyway, I felt so much that I didn't want to leave them yet. So I took Lincoln and the two Roosevelt's and LBJ. And they all lived in turbulent times. I mean, you have the Civil War, you've got the turn of the 20th century, which is much like ours, which we may talk about. The Industrial Revolution had shaken up the economy, much like globalization and trade have done today. And then, of course, you have FDR and the Depression, and you've got Lyndon Johnson and civil rights. And I just I always was interested in leadership. When I was in grad school in the old days, it'll probably sound pretty nerdy, but we would stay up at night asking questions like, where does ambition come from? Um, does the man make the times? Or does the time make the man? Is leadership inborn or is it developed? And then I finally figured, I've now been studying this for 50 years, and I'd like to sort of answer those questions I thought about when I was a young girl and keep my guys together. Is there a, a single definition of leadership? 
I don't think there is. I mean, my own definition that I came to, I mean, it's one of those huge topics. Some people, like James McGregor Burns, says there has to be an ethical definition to leadership. And if you're not ethically driven for the greater good, that perhaps you're just a power holder rather than a leader. Um, I would argue it's it's being able to make people join, mobilize people to join together in a common cause that's for the greater good. I mean, that's that's what at least my four guys did at their best. Um, and and that and that's an extraordinary thing when you have the leaders and the citizens able to work together to make economic opportunity or to make social justice better or to save us from some external threat. That's an extraordinary thing. And I was so glad to at least be living with these larger-than-life figures. They shine a light, I think, on the absence of leadership today. And I think we have to just remember what real leadership is like in order to be looking for it again and judging the people we're voting for by a certain series of traits that emphasize what leadership is. Author historian Doris Kearns Goodwin during our onstage conversation at the St. Louis County Library last Saturday evening. She's the author of Leadership in Turbulent Times, an examination of how Presidents Lincoln, the two Roosevelts, and LBJ handled crises. More in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Welcome back to our conversation with Doris Kearns Goodwin at the St. Louis County Library, recorded last Saturday. We're talking about her book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. What are the similarities between these, uh, these four men? Well, I'd say that, you know, there's no magic recipe for leadership, but I think there's a family resemblance of traits. I mean, they come from very different backgrounds. There's no simple journey to the leadership. I mean, both LBJ and... And Lincoln had difficult backgrounds. Obviously, the two Roosevelts come from a very privileged way. They had different temperaments. They had different leadership styles. But I think they all did a number of things. They all were able to grow in office. I think that's a really important thing, um, to be able to learn from your experiences. Um, you have to... You have to have resilience. You have to have humility. <laughs> think of these qualities as we think about it. Um, you have to um, have courage. I mean, I think, you know, the first one, I think, is when I think about Lincoln, I, I start with them when they're all young. I mean, I decided, because I was in a, an audience of college students talking about leadership lessons from Teddy and Taft after my last book had come out, and a college student said, well, how can I ever become one of them? Um, they're on Mount Rushmore. They, they're too remote. I can't imagine myself being them. So I decided I would start with them when they were young, and then I'd see eventually what leadership qualities they, they shared. So Lincoln, when he's 23 years old, it's amazing. He runs for office the first time, and he has this great statement. He says, everyone has his peculiar ambition, he begins. Mine is to be esteemed of by my fellow man and to be worthy of that esteem. Amazing that you say that when you're 23 years old. And then he says, I've only been here a short time, and you know, I, I may not win this election, but I've been too familiar with disappointment to be very much chagrined. But then he says, but if I lose the election, I, I warn you, I'm going to try five or six more times <laughs> until it's too humiliating, and then I'll never try again. So that perseverance is one of the qualities that they all showed. 
I think humility, which is the ability to acknowledge errors and learn from your mistakes. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, when he first got into the state legislature, he had what he called a swelled head. He was so excited about being there and so anxious to get his Democratic opponents against the things that he was against, so he was going to turn on them, and he said all these blistering things about them, and it made headlines. He was in New York State, headlines, but he said after a while he couldn't get anything done because they were so angry with him, and so he said, I rose like a rocket, and I fell like a rocket, and he was in, he was liking to be in the center of attention, but he learned to soften his rhetoric. It was said that he liked to be the baby at the baptism and the bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral. <laughs> But that humility came from having failed, and he learned that. Obviously, FDR learned enormous resilience from his polio. He emerged from that extraordinarily difficult experience, more warm-hearted, more able to understand other people to whom fate had dealt an unkind hand. So that that's part of what they resembled. I think they all learned how to communicate. Um, and this is something you would know about, too, obviously, having been in the world of television and then in radio, but each one was able to communicate best in their own time. Lincoln was lucky with that gift for language that his speeches would be printed in full in the newspapers and then reprinted in, in pamphlets and reread aloud in country homes and city farms. Teddy Roosevelt had that short, punchy language that was perfect for the national press. You know, speak softly and carry a big stick. You know, don't hit until you have to and then hit hard. He even gave Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. And, and so then FDR comes along for radio. And that voice was so exactly tuned for that, that intimate voice where people would feel he was talking to them directly. You must feel, don't you think radio does that even more than television? Much, much more so. I absolutely feel that, yeah. Yeah, I think and, I... And, you know, if radio hadn't come along when it did and as it did, who knows how the world might have been changed because he was so effective in those chats. Oh, in fact, people really felt they had come, he had come to talk to them. Um, there's a story of a construction worker running home one night when one of FDR's fireside chats was on the air and his partner said, where are you going? He said, well, my president, he's coming to speak to me in my living room. It's only right I be there to greet him when he comes. But he understood that he wanted to have an image in his mind of individuals, a shop girl or a mason or a construction worker in his head, and so he could really directly talk to that person. LBJ, of course, had television, but he was not nearly as effective on television as Roosevelt was on the radio or as his predecessor had been. No, certainly JFK and, and Ronald Reagan mastered the art of television, but LBJ, when he was good at, at television, was when he spoke to joint sessions of Congress. When he was at home in front of his congressional family, in a certain sense, for example, when he gives the first speech he gives four days after JFK died is to a joint session of Congress, and he makes the decision that he's going to make the passage of the Civil Rights Bill the absolute number one priority. And his advisor says, you can't do that. Um, you, it's, you'll never get it through the Southern filibuster. You'll be a, a presidential candidate 11 months from now. You will have failed. Nothing will happen. And they say, you only have a certain amount of currency to expend as a president. You shouldn't spend it on this. And then he says, with an unambiguous answer, well, then what the hell is the presidency for? 
and he goes to that Congress, he knows them, he talks to them, just as he did after the Selma demonstrations when he talked to them about voting rights, and then he could really speak, because he said what convinces his conviction, and civil rights really was his conviction. I mean, sadly, the war in Vietnam will always be a stain on his legacy, but I think that ability to really push on civil rights will be more and more remembered as time goes by, plus Medicare, Medicaid, aid to education, NPR, PBS, immigration reform. What he did domestically is extraordinary, and it all came from his understanding of Congress. I mean, he had those congressmen over, in that first six months when he was in office, every single congressman came to the White House in groups of 30. He would start calling them at six in the morning. He'd call them at midnight. He'd call a senator at 2 a.m., you know, I hope I didn't wake you up. No, no, I was just lying here hoping my president would call. <laughs> You know, and he understood how to bring Republicans along. He needed the Republicans to break the filibuster. So Everett Dirksen, he sits down, and they can do earmarks in those days. An ambassadorship, you got it. You want me to come and give you a postmastership in Peoria? I'm coming. You want me to see, see you in Springfield? No problem. But then he also understands that Dirksen cares about his own reputation. So he said, Everett... You come with me on this bill, he's the minority leader at that time, Dirksen is, and you bring some Republicans to help me break that filibuster, and 200 years from now, school children will know only two names, Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. <laughs> How can Dirksen resist? It's one of the things that uh, all of these, all of your guys had in common, was they all wanted to be remembered favorably, right. which must have had a great bearing on all of their actions in these key moments. I, absolutely. I mean, we really do want that. It's not so much that you want to figure out when you're in office what your ranking is going to be in the presidential poll, but to be remembered favorably means that you will have done something that stands the test of time. And, and they all eventually got to that. So it's so different than celebrity. It's so different from the moment of popularity. It's really that deeper urge that it, maybe you go into politics at the beginning for yourself, and many of them do, but once you get in there, there's a transformative moment when you want to be doing something for the greater good, something that will help other people. And when that sets in, I think it does make you a different leader. And at some point, each one of these guys, that set in for them. You know, Lyndon Johnson will not be remembered favorably by a lot of people because of Vietnam, as you suggested. What happened there? You knew the man. You knew the man well. Was it just that he was so plugged into domestic policy and legislative issues that he let the, the world part of it slide? I think it was partly that he was so desirous of the domestic legislation to continue that he didn't tell the truth to the American people about the escalation of the war. But I think he just was so unfamiliar with foreign policy. And instead of having a vision of what he wanted to achieve in Vietnam, he was simply trying not to fail. And that meant that every time he was given a decision to make, you've got to put more troops in or you will fail, he was afraid of the failure, and there's no way that's going to work. And then when he started escalating them more and more and more, he wanted to keep the Great Society going, so he hid the appropriations, he didn't go for a tax, he didn't get the National Reserves out, and he never really was straight with the American people. And that's what I was saying earlier, but he paid the consequences for that, and rightly so. When the war didn't go as badly as he seemed to think it was going, he was on his credibility gap, that developed, that was a word, and he was unable then to continue on as he wanted to in 68. He had to decide to withdraw from the presidency. And I know from those last years when I was with him at the ranch, I mean, it, it weighed on him as well. I mean, it certainly didn't weigh as heavy as it did on the country and the people who died. But he knew that somehow that what he had wanted to achieve, if only people might remember him for civil rights. And indeed, the last public statement he made 
after he'd already had a heart attack and would die six weeks later, he came up to the podium and they were opening the civil rights papers at his library. And he talked about the fact that we haven't done enough. He had all the civil rights leaders there and they were celebrating all that he had done. He said, we'll never do enough until the black and the white man stand on equal ground in a fair life. And he had to pop a nitroglycerin pill in because the pain was so great. And then he reprised his famous statement in the We Shall Overcome speech in 65. But if we work hard at that, we shall overcome. Helped down the platform and six weeks later died. But civil rights will be remembered for him. He did an extraordinary thing with civil rights. We, we should point out that that We Shall Overcome speech was written by your husband. I know that. No, in fact, um, no, I didn't mean that that way. It just means so much to me emotionally. I mean, my husband worked for LBJ. He worked for JFK as well. And he died this last spring after a year's battle with cancer. But he was working on a book at that time which had to do with his love affair with America from the time he was young and what the ideals of America meant for him. And he, as much as me and looking at history, was telling me, don't, don't let this situation now make you lose faith in this country. He had lived through the Depression. He'd lived through World War I. He said, America's not as fragile as you think. But that experience of working with LBJ on that We Shall Overcome speech was one of the most extraordinary moments in his life. Johnson had decided on a Sunday night to give a joint session of Congress speech that Monday night. And Dick had only that day to work on the speech. And it's an extraordinary speech. When you look every now and then, history and fate meet at a certain point in a certain time. So it was in Lexington and Concord. So it was at Appomattox. So it was at Selma, Alabama. This is not a Negro problem. This is not a white problem. This is not a Northern problem. This is not a Southern problem. This is an American problem. And we are met here to meet that problem. And then he talked about we shall overcome, taking the anthem of the civil rights movement, meaning that the outside and the inside are coming together. But then there was an amazing moment. Johnson only bothered him once that day. He knew he couldn't stop him. He only had eight hours to write this speech. He said, I want you to talk about the experience I had at Catula. Catula, Texas. When Johnson was young and he was in college, he took a year off because he needed to make money and he became a teacher in a small Mexican-American community and he saw the pain of prejudice on those kids' faces. So he made himself everything in the school. He used his money to buy sporting equipment. He was the debate coach. He was the principal. He was, he was you know, the, the band leader. And those kids, I read the oral history, they said he changed their lives because he believed in them. So he brings it up in this speech. He said, when I was in 1928, when I saw the pain of prejudice on those Mexican-American kids' faces, I never thought that I would be able to do something to help their children. But I'm telling you what, I have the power now, and I mean to use it. And that was one of the extraordinary moments. And that was my husband's finest feeling in public life. I'm just looking at a quote from your book. Uh, concerning Lyndon Johnson, he uh, said at uh, some point early in his career, and it, his advice to other politicians, get close to those in power to get ahead. Right, right, he exactly right. No, he always had these sayings, like for example, whenever I talk about um, Abraham Lincoln putting his team of rivals into his cabinet, um, and it, it's a really noble thing to do, and, and, and he would say, Lincoln, the country's in peril, these are the strongest and most able people in the country, I need them by my side. But Lyndon Johnson would say, it's better to have your enemies inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent <laughs> pissing in. So, you know, I think, I think one of the problems... One of the problems for Lyndon Johnson as well that he didn't share with my other three guys was that he was never able to relax. He was never able to replenish his energies. I mean, even when we'd be swimming in his pool at the ranch, 
the pool would be filled with floating rafts, with floating telephones, with floating memo pads, so you could hardly move in the pool. He hated to go to the movies because he couldn't talk, whereas each one of my other guys was able to find time to think and to relax. I mean, Lincoln actually went to the theater a hundred times during the Civil War. He said when the lights went down and a Shakespeare play came on for a few precious hours, he could forget the war that was raging. And then he had this extraordinary sense of humor. We could tell a funny story, and that would allow him to sleep at night by thinking of something funny rather than something difficult. Teddy Roosevelt was able to exercise for two hours every day. Somehow we think we're so busy we can't find time for these things, and he has the Industrial Revolution to deal with, but yet he would have a wrestling match or a boxing match, or his favorite was a hike in the wooded cliffs of Rock Creek Park. He loved to go and bring people with him, and there was a rule. You had to go point to point. You couldn't go around any obstacles, so if you came to a rock, you had to climb it. You came to a precipice, you had to go down. So these stories of people just falling by the wayside as they come with him, but the best story was told by the French ambassador. He came in his silk outfit. He was so excited that he'd be walking with the president in the woods, and he thought it would be like the Champs-Élysées, and he finds himself not able to keep up with him. Finally, they come to a stream, and he says, thank God it's over. However, he hears Roosevelt say, well, we don't want to get our things wet. It's an obstacle. We have to go through it. So I, too, for the honor of France, took off my apparel. However, I left on my lavender kid gloves. It would be so embarrassing if you should meet ladies on the other side. <laughs> but, but my favorite is, is FDR. I mean, during World War II, he had a cocktail party every night in the White House where the rule was you couldn't talk about the war. You could talk about movies or books, gossip, as long as you didn't bring up the war. So for a few precious hours, he could forget the war that was raging. And after a while, this cocktail hour mattered so much to him that he wanted to have the people who would be ready to go to the cocktail hour living on the second floor of the White House to be ready. So the second floor became the most exclusive hotel you could imagine. His foreign policy advisor, Harry Hopkins, came for dinner one night, slept over, never left till the war came to an end. His secretary, Missy Lahand, is living there. Lorena Hickok, Eleanor's friend, has a bedroom next to Eleanor. The princess from Norway visits on the weekends, and she's there. And the great Winston Churchill is there, spending weeks at a time in a room diagonally across from Roosevelt's. So when I was working on the Roosevelt book, I became obsessed with the thought, they're all in their bathrobes at night, and they're talking in the corridor, and what incredible conversations they must have had, and wishing when I were up there with Lyndon Johnson, I thought of asking, where did Roosevelt sleep? Where was Eleanor? Where was Harry Hopkins? But I wasn't thinking in those terms. So I mentioned this on a radio program in Washington, and it happened that Hillary Clinton, then in the White House, was listening. So she called me up at the radio station, invited me to sleep overnight in the White House. And she said, during our sleepover, we could figure out where everyone had lived 50 years earlier. So she followed up with an invitation to a state dinner two weeks later, after which between the state dinner, midnight and 2 a.m., the president, Mrs. Clinton, my husband and I, with my map, went through every room and figured out, yes, Chelsea Clinton is sleeping where Harry Hopkins was, the Clintons are sleeping where the Roosevelt's was, and we were given Winston Churchill's bedroom. There was no way I could sleep. He was sitting in the corner drinking his brandy, smoking his cigar. So anyway, that's another trait. It's really important for them to find time to think, to be able to sleep at night when they're anxious, and to be able to turn their attentions to another place. And, and LBJ couldn't do that, which meant that he got eaten up even more by the war. You are listening to my conversation with Doris Kearns Goodwin, the Pulitzer Prize-winning presidential historian. Our discussion about her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, took place at the St. Louis County Library last Saturday night. Our conversation continues when we return. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Welcome back as we continue our conversation with Doris Kearns Goodwin, recorded last Saturday at the St. Louis County Library. We're talking about her book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. Who of, the, of your guys would be most active on Twitter today, were they alive? <laughs> no question, Teddy Roosevelt. In fact, I think if Teddy came back today, he could actually give a run for President Trump, more than almost anybody live that I can think of, mainly because he was a colorful character. He was entertaining. Um, you, they said about him that you, it was like a boy following a circus. When he was in town, you couldn't put your eyes anywhere else. He had that capacity for short statements, as I was saying. But most importantly, the difference would be that he talked about a square deal for the rich and the poor, the capitalist and the wage worker. When President Trump talks about a deal, he one time said, that idea that both sides win in a deal is just crazy. He said it less, less dramatic, less, more dramatically than that. But he said, um, only matters if I win. So that's a, a one-sided part of a deal that I, Teddy would understand. But Teddy would also understand the importance of having a partnership with the press, not having the press as an enemy of the people. The press are absolutely essential part of our democracy. It's the fourth estate. And he needed them badly. Um, and he was, able to, he was able to have a self-deprecating sense of humor. There's a moment when a famous journalist wrote him a um, critique of his experience. In this. He'd written a memoir about the Spanish-American War, and the journalist said he so placed himself in the center of every at battle, every action of the war, he should have called the book Alone in Cuba. <laughs> and so what does he do? He writes a letter to the journalist. He said, I regret to tell you that my wife and my intimate friends are absolutely delighted with your review of my book. Now you owe me something I've long wanted to make your attention, and I've wanted to make your, your understanding and your friendship. Now you must come and meet me. And so the journalist was upset at first. Maybe I shouldn't because he's too charismatic. But they became friends. He was still able to criticize Teddy. Teddy was able to criticize him. And it's that kind of two-way relationship that's so essential with the press. We want to take some questions from the audience, and we'll do so. But one other question I want to ask, if I may, and that is, what about the women in their lives, the first ladies? What role did they play? Well, they all played a huge role. Whether they become as extraordinary as Eleanor Roosevelt, which I'll say for last, um, the way they are involved with their husbands and the stability they give them or the trouble they give them is absolutely essential, as we all know from husbands and wives. I mean, that's, that's a core of our lives. So that Mary Lincoln, even though she was a difficult person when he was in the presidency and was prone to depression after her, first, her little son, Willie, died, before that, she had believed in his destiny from the time she was young when she first met him. And her father had been active in politics. He was so excited about knowing that she knew Henry Clay. And when he first met her at her governor's house, because her sister was married to the governor, he went up to her and he said, Mary, I'd love to dance with you in the worst way. And Mary said he certainly did after they did. <laughs> But in all those years when he lost elections, she believed in his destiny. And I think people are unfair to her because they don't understand how important she was then, even though later her depression and her manic depression became a problem. Teddy Roosevelt's wife, Edith, said she thought the only place a woman should be in, in the newspapers was when she's born and when she died. She had no interest in being a public figure, but she gave him that sense of a raucous family, a respite from his, his, his politics that he, he probably needed more than anybody. And there's no question what Lady Bird meant to Lyndon Johnson. I saw it when I was there at the ranch. He could go off on something. She could just put her hand on his knee and say, now, Lyndon, you don't really believe that, do you? 
I mean, I had this extraordinary thing happen to me, which was that in the last, I had known Lady Bird well for the years when I was there, when I was in my 20s, but I hadn't seen her for a long period of time. And then when Team of Rivals came out, Lucy told me that her mother had by that time had a stroke and couldn't see and couldn't read um, and couldn't speak. But Lucy was having the audible version of Team of Rivals read to her mother. And she, they spent a lot of time doing it. And afterwards, Lucy said to her mother, we have to call old Doris Kearns now and tell her what you felt about it. And I couldn't understand because I knew that she couldn't speak what would happen. They called me on the phone and Lucy said, my mother wants to tell you how much she cared about Team of Rivals. And all I heard was Lady Bird clapping on the other end. So it was an extraordinary thing for me to know that full circle thing came. But then, of course, there's Eleanor. And without Eleanor, FDR would not have been what he was. There's no question. He said she was a welcome thorn in his side, that she always was willing to question his assumptions. She was always willing to argue with him. I mean, during World War II, she sent so many memos to General Marshall that he had to assign a separate general whose only task was to deal with Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> she had a weekly press conference, and the rule was that you couldn't um, you could only go to her press conference if you were a woman. So all over the country, publishers were hiring their first female reporter. An entire generation of female journalists got their start because of Eleanor Roosevelt's press conferences. So she was able to tell truth to power. And um, I would love to have known Eleanor Roosevelt. So she was unusual in the sense that she was a public figure as well as a private figure. And, um, but they all played a central role, as is humanly possible when you are married for that long period of time. And he really got the presidential press conference started, didn't he? Yes, FDR. in fact, he's the first one that had the, yes, that's exactly right. I mean, on, the, on like the first, second, third day he was in office, he had that first press conference. He had two press conferences a week. Can you imagine that? A complete exchange, free with the reporters. On, they could be on background, they were on full secret, but he said that preparing for those press conferences, and he would get nervous. They said before he'd go out for a press conference, his hand might be shaking because he knew how important it was, and he took a lot of time preparing, but he said, these are the people who are going to be channeling my words to the country. And then he had the fireside chats to go over them if he needed to. But that partnership is so essential to restore today. Hands raised, please. We've got a question for Doris. As you reflect on the wins that the Democrats made in this last election, it seems like a more moderate message worked to win voters over. So I'm thinking as we look for, toward a candidate for president, vice president, uh, should we go stable and establishment or a combination of more fresh face and progressive? Looking for your wisdom. Well, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that I know who's out there in the same way. I mean, just think about it. I mean, in, in 1858, in a midterm election, um, Abraham Lincoln loses that Senate race. But he has finally just made himself a figure in part because of the Stephen Douglas debates with him. But still, it would take a year or two, and then even then he's a dark horse candidate. I think we need to be looking, if we are looking for a more centrist person, to take the first part of your question, that person has to be a fiery centrist. It cannot be just that you're a moderate person. I think you have to believe that that's where the country should be with as much passion as somebody who's a 
right-wing person or a left-wing person has. And I think, and it may be that the, the ticket should combine, which I think your question suggested, somebody who is maybe younger, more progressive, somebody who's got some experience, but who, who believes that what we need is to heal the divisions in the country. And I know that I, I would be looking somehow at people we don't even know right now, mayors, people in state governments, governors, they, they know how to solve problems better in some ways than the characters in Washington do because they've been so fighting for so long that I think it's like you've been in a war, you don't know what peace is, as I was saying. So that um, I, I, I'm not sure we can know who it is right now. I'm not even sure what we can take from this last election because some of the progressive candidates almost always won. They almost won. So that doesn't mean that we were turning down progressivism. But I know that what people are looking for in this country is somebody who can work with both sides but can have convictions about where we go. They have to set a direction. And what consensus is is not a sort of a middle ground. It's knowing where you want to take the country but then being able to bring other people along. And I think being able to talk to the people who feel left out of the system right now, being able to deal with the lack of mobility in the country, was education is still the central problem, that people don't feel they have the chance to rise to the level of their disciplines and talents, I think is the real poison in the system, along with the money, which is the poison in the system. We have to get rid of that as well. I don't know how we do that, but somehow, the one thing I would say is that FDR said problems created by man can be solved by man, and we need a candidate who believes that, who believes that we have within our power to solve the problems that are tearing us apart, that can talk to the people who feel that the other part of the people in Washington has left them behind, that can somehow make us feel common citizens again as part of a country, common Americans. A woman? I sure hope it'll be a woman before I get too old. <laughs> Why question. not? Why not? I'm not, I'm not fighting me on that no, one. No, I know you're not. <laughs> Another question. Yes. Um, I share your enthusiasm about the new voters and the many women and so forth who are being involved in our process, but I'm very concerned about the well-documented efforts to suppress the vote among many of, many of our population, as well as, of course, foreign inter interference in our elections. And I think that can supersede the number of new people. Um, I'm wondering if there are historical analogies or um, parallels in what you've studied and solutions that might have come from history that we can try now. Oh, I think you're you're absolutely right that it's it is a, it is a really it's actually a terrifying thing to think that a person's vote is not going to be counted correctly. I mean, we we should have automatic registration. I mean, it's crazy that in a democracy. We don't have automatic registration. We don't have the chance to send our votes in. We don't have a national holiday on the day that the votes are being taken. I mean, there's nothing more important than having the exercise of a citizen's right to vote and having the, and if we have to have paper ballots once again <laughs> instead of machine ballots, as I say, there's answer to these problems, but we need citizens. This has to become a movement, I think, on the part of citizens, not just the voting, but we need political reform in this country. We needed economic revolution at the time of the New Deal, and we need a political revolution right now to protect the right of vote, to make sure that people have the chance to do it, that it's not something that is taken lightly. 
family, um, and that everybody, uh, this should be our next movement. The, uh, in addition to that, we need nonpartisan drawing up of the congressional lines. There are four states now that have, have, are moving to do that. The ballots passed in some of those states instead of the gerrymandering we had. There's a movement afoot in a lot of states. It might take a long time to have a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United to get that kind of money out of the political system. And, and, and I, I, I keep thinking that what, what if we had a national service program where people from the cities were able to go to the countryside for a year or so after high school and they'd be able to work on some common missions, whether it's disaster relief or volunteering or service or helping with the elderly, and they get to see the other people that they now consider the other. One of the things that Teddy Roosevelt warned against is that democracy would founder if people from different regions and different um, different religions or races began to see each other as the other rather than as common American citizens. I saw a really frightening thing in, in an article the other day that said more people would be afraid now of having their child marry outside the political party than marry outside of religion or race. I mean, what has happened with that hyper-partisanship that went way, way away from your question, but I, I agree with you totally that the fundamental thing is to protect the right to vote, and whatever we as citizens do to make that happen should really be our first priority right now. Uh, perhaps I'm asking you to help us whistle in the dark, but uh, what gives a lot of us uh, pause is the understanding that historically previous civilizations, previous governments have come to a tipping point and gone the wrong way. And one gets the sense that these days the United States is on the razor's edge. So from a historical point of view, have we been here before and uh, how well assured can we be then in fact we'll carry on, or if we're going to tip, we'll tip in the right direction. I, I guess just, just go back with me to the 1850s and imagine what it was like, not just when the country began splitting apart, but the cultures had split apart, much as they have, I think, today too. If you were in, in if you would, the way you got your news in the 1850s, unfortunately, is similar to today. You're just reading your own partisan newspaper. You, there's no national newspapers that have really come into being very much. So you could be reading in a partisan newspaper that a Stephen Douglas debate had taken place with Lincoln. And if you're reading the Republican newspaper, you're reading that he was so great that he's carried out on the shoulders of the people in triumph. You read the Democratic newspaper and you read that he was so terrible that he fell on the floor and they had to carry him out in humiliation. Much like we have in the cable networks today, that there's very different ways of thinking. When the young congressman from South Carolina came to hit the northern senator, Sumner, over the head with a cane, um, he was lionized in the South, even though cane, the cane rendered Sumner unconscious and he was out of commission for months. Everybody was buying canes in the South, and they were giving him a golden cane. And in the North, it mobilized the anti-slavery movement. So it couldn't have been further apart that the country, was the country, the experiment that the founders had created, was going to fall apart together, and that we were not going to ever be able to get back together again, and that slavery would continue to exist in the South. Those moments must have been more terrifying even than ours are today. And yet somehow, that anti-slavery movement grew, Abraham Lincoln came, we had to have a civil war, and, and we managed to come through it, and slavery came to an end, and the Union was preserved. 
So I think we have to remember, as I said, in, in that depression time, the feeling was capitalism was at risk. There was no way that capitalism was going to succeed anymore. And all these other countries in the world are turning to dictatorships. They're turning to fascism. They're, and Hitler and Mussolini are rising. And then World War II comes, and that generation is able to fight that war. There were times when we weren't sure how we were going to end that war, that maybe democracy was on the run. Now it feels, you're right, not just for us, but it feels like democracy's on the run in other places in the world. And I think it may have to do with the fact that, that these, these global economies and these technological improvements have helped, but not, not spreading the prosperity of the countries to the people as a whole. And there's been a gap between the rich and the poor in our country and in many of the others, a lack of mobility. But if we can begin to solve those problems, I think, and those problems have to be solved. I mean, that's why I think the, what Lincoln said, I'll, I'll tell you a worrisome thing, and then I'll, I'll make it more positive, I promise. When Lincoln was 29 years old, he wrote um, a, an address, a Lyceum address, and he was worried about a mob-like atmosphere in the country at that time. A lot of anti-slavery editors were being killed. There were lynchings in the South. The rule of law was not being followed. And he said that what he worried about was the fact that the scenes of the revolution were fading from people. And that meant the scenes of what the ideals of the country were and they were founded by. And he was worried in such an anxious time, somebody would rise up wanting to tear us down rather than build us up. And he worried about an autocracy coming to America. And he said the answer to it is to remember where we came from, to remember that America is the country we would all rather be in than any other country in the world. And if we can still remember that and remember what those ideals are, and, and he said, which makes me feel so happy, read history. You should read history to your children like the Bible is being read to your children. And I think we have to get civics education back in our schools. We have to get our young kids to love history again. We have to remember what the ideals of the country are. And we have to just tell ourselves, however we feel we're at a tipping point, none of us would rather live in any other country than this country. And we have to remember that strength, and we have to fight for it. And it is a time to fight, because we are at a tipping point. But I have to believe we've been at those tipping points before, and we'll get through this one. I really do believe so. And, and there's no other choice. You have to be optimistic. You have to believe you can change things, or else this situation we're in will seem the norm. And it can't be the norm that we wake up every day to breaking news, that we wake up every day to lies, that we hear about fake, we hear about alternative facts, and we hear about a lack of decency in our, our culture. And we know we want it to be different, and we have to believe that we can make it different. We believed we could make it different in World War II, World War I, and we did make a difference, and we can do it again. The civil rights movement believed they could heal the racial divisions. They're still not, they're still not healed, but they're far better off now than they were in 1960. We have to remember where we are compared to where we were. And, and I think if we can just keep doing that and keep having a sense of where history has taken us and where history will take us again, that, that we'll get there. Doris Kearns Goodwin during our conversation about her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, at the St. Louis County Library headquarters. That conversation took place last Saturday night. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.